0: Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message.
1: I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife among with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because when the plowman plows and the thresher thretches, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, Is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we all have it the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than to have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. When this is my reward, what this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might have saved some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the, winners, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize.
0: Let's pray. Father, your word is powerful. You created the universe with the power of your word, and your word goes out and makes a people. So God, I pray that your word would go out in clarity this morning, that you would uh, be merciful to me, a sinner, and that I would get out of the way, and that your word would be preached this morning. God, I don't want to waste anybody's time I'm so grateful for this church. I love this church, and I pray that this church would be built up because of your Son and His Word and this gospel. Help us to learn what it means to follow Jesus in our new secular age. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Come gather around people wherever you roam, and admit that the waters around you have grown, and accept that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. If your time, it is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. Back in 1963, when Bob Dylan wrote those words, no one had any idea the massive cultural shift that America would, would experience. I mean, it was just 25 years ago that Russ Moore, who's a theologian, When he was in college, uh, he had this regular coffee date with a friend, and that friend just so happened to be an atheist. Um, And so, you know, they would get together and talk about things, and in the course of conversations, God would come up. And um, it wasn't as though Russ's friend was antagonistic toward the faith. He just kind of saw it as irrelevant. Uh, It was kind of like as useful as talking about where elves lived. Like, it just... That's God. It's kind of weird. It just doesn't really have any relevance to my life. So you can imagine Russell Moore's surprise when that atheist friend on one of these coffee dates says to him, Hey, can you give me the name of a good Southern Baptist church I can join? Russ was taken aback. He was like, Oh my goodness. And what happened? And he fully anticipated expecting his friend to just start crying and say, like, oh, yeah, like, my atheism just shattered as I, I was confronted with the truths of the gospel, and so I'm totally done, and I'm embracing Jesus. But no, the friend replied, oh, no, 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 I, I don't actually still believe that stuff, but you see, I'm running for office, and in this state, I'll never get elected if I'm not a church member. And, and so I did my homework And uh, I found out there are more Southern Baptists in this state than anybody else, so sign me up. Russ said that at first he thought he was in the turning lane of somebody's Damascus Road experience, and then he realized, oh, wow, this guy is receiving Christ to get America in his heart. Oh, the times they are a-changing. Fast forward to 2018, just a couple weeks ago, one of my favorite magazines, The New Yorker, so please don't take this as a slight against the New Yorker. You should read the New Yorker. It's great. However, just a couple weeks ago in the New Yorker, the New Yorker wrote an article about a chain restaurant that's owned by Christian that's Christians that's moving into Manhattan. They called it creepy. And they had some legitimate points. Let's just be honest. They were like, this is a suburban chain. It reeks of inauthenticity. Uh, like, it, it has no place in New York. And on that level, they're probably right, okay? Like, I'd totally give them that. But this is what the article went on to say. The article said these people have malintent and they shouldn't be trusted. Why? Because in their mission statement as a company, it says they exist to glorify God. Now, lots of Christians don't agree on lots of things, okay? But nearly all Christians everywhere agree that if you're a Christian, your life is to glorify God. And even at that baseline level that's creepy, and we're viewed as shady. Oh, the times, they are a-changing. See that? There was a time in American culture when Christians were viewed favorably. That's gone. The Bible belt has fallen off. It's on the floor somewhere. And, and just to be clear, I want to be crystal clear. I am not trying to call anybody back to the good old days, okay? I don't believe there ever were any good old days, People have always been sinful, and America has never been a Christian nation. There have been seasons in American culture when we liked Christian values, when we saw how being a good Christian brought value to the society as a whole. Oh yeah, parents stay together, divorce is shameful. So they, they co-opted Christianity, but there was, there was no talk of Christ and Him crucified. America has never been a Christian nation. What the change I'm talking about that's happened recently is that we went from being viewed positively to all of a sudden being viewed suspiciously. What do these people want? What are they up to? You see, this isn't the first time the church has had to face this kind of issue. And and the church has always responded in one one of two ways. You can either assimilate the culture or you can withdraw. So you can, you can be faced with this issue, like the culture doesn't like me. What do we do? Well, let's pick up our basketball and let's go, let's go make our own stuff. Let's start our own institutions. Let's just leave the culture. Let's withdraw. That's one option. The other option seems to be assimilate. And that's been happening in America for the past couple hundred years. Oh, you think the virgin birth is weird? Yeah, so do we. Cut it out. Resurrection? Yeah, science has proven that people don't raise from the dead. We don't believe that either. Super weird. We'll cut all the weird stuff out. But when you assimilate and when you withdraw, in both sides, you lose the hope of the gospel. On one side, you lose the hope of the gospel because you're not around people to give them that hope. They can't see it. At best, you may do like drive-by missions trips where you're just like, oh, I got to tell you everything about the gospel. I don't know anything about you, but here's the gospel. If you don't believe in six seconds, you're going to hell, bye-bye. You're really scary. And on the other side, you have have no hope to offer them because you, you are them. You've cut out everything that makes Christianity weird. You've cut out all the distinctions, and there's nothing left to offer. Do you feel that tension? That's the world we live in. Now that you feel that, you're able to start to understand why Paul is talking about meat offered to idols. That you didn't think I was going to say that. The whole conversation about meat offered to idols is not really about diet. I hope you get that. The conversation that we've been having for the past couple of weeks about meat being offered to idols is a conversation about how do you be a Christian in a pagan world. You see, in Corinth, there were temples everywhere. And we know that it was impossible to get a slab of meat without going into a temple. These temples had restaurants in them. They had butcher shops. And so last week, what we talked about was... if You're a strong Christian. You've been a Christian for a while. You know there's no legitimacy to that stuff. That idol is just a stone. When they offer meat to it, they're not really doing anything because there's only one God. But you may have someone who's struggling in their faith, someone who's a new believer or who just is really the tentacles of paganism are still wrapped around them. They believe in Jesus. They're just struggling. And so when you go to buy that meat, they're like, whoa, what are you doing? We worship Jesus and you're worshiping these gods. What do we do? We remember from last week from Ed's message that if what we do in that situation is when God's people are living in a pagan place, they love one another. We're a family. We look out for each other. So yes, you have the knowledge that that's just a piece of meat, but you lay aside your right to eat that meat to help someone who's struggling in their faith. Now Paul flips things around a little bit. He's saying, how do we treat one another? That's 1 Corinthians 8. That was last week. This week, it's how do we live in this world? How do we, how do we tr- live our lives toward pagans? How do we live toward people who are suspicious of us? And so he's, he, he's still talking about meat offered to idols. That's Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. But in the middle, chapter 9, he flips the camera around to himself. And he starts talking about how he lives differently. And this is what 1 Corinthians 9 is all about. This is where Paul is going. This is what drives him here. This is what he says. Because Jesus gave himself for you, you can give your life to people you disagree with. Because Jesus died for you, because he he died for his enemies, you can give your life to people you disagree with. Paul wants us to avoid both sides of this. To avoid assimilating and to avoid running away and withdrawal. And he says this, he offers a new way, incarnation. Now, I'm not the smartest cookie. I don't even know what the the metaphor is, but I'm, see, there you go. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Incarnation, it's a big word. But if you're eating chili con carne, that's chili with meat, all right? And what what that idea comes from is John 1, where John says this, the word became flesh meaty. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul's saying this, do that. Do that and you'll avoid assimilating and you'll avoid withdrawing. We can go into broken places. We don't need to sell out and we don't need to run from those broken places. We can go in those broken places. Why? Because of the gospel. So Paul tells us three changes that happen when we do incarnational ministry. Three, Three things that are different about us. We do rights differently, we do friendships differently, and we do discipline differently. That's what 1 Corinthians 9 is. So first we're going to look at what it, what it looks like to do our rights differently. How, how if we're going to be incarnational, if we're going to live among broken people, how are we going to do rights? And this is what Paul says. He says, give up your rights to discover who you are. Give up your rights to discover who you are. So this chapter starts in verses one to 14. It starts with Paul making this kind of odd defense about paying pastors. Um, So what we know from this culture, all right, just a side note, Amy keeps telling me I'm really bad at drink breaks, that they're distracting. I'm like, no, they're not. And yeah, that was distracting. Sorry. Um, So what Paul is saying is this. So people, Paul came to Corinth, didn't take a dime from them, and he left, went back to Ephesus. And we know from verse 3, look at verse 3, that there are people who had something against Paul. They were doubting his credibility. And this is what Paul says. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment over me. So people thought like, hey, Paul, he's not a real apostle. You know, they had lots of itinerant preachers back in the day. This is Rome. Philosophy's a big deal. People, philosophers would come to your town. They would, you know, fill out a stadium. You'd pay them a ton of money. and like, Oh, that's the real deal. Now Paul comes, he's, he's drawn a crowd, there's people who are saved, but he didn't take any money because he's not a professional, because he's not a real apostle, because he's not real. This guy's like, his, he has no credibility. And so Paul actually takes that argument and flips it around. He says this, no, 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 no. I actually have more credibility because I don't draw a paycheck from you guys. And so what he seeks to do, though, to to build that case, is he first makes a huge case for why he should be paid. And I think what he's trying to do is he's helping us think differently about rights. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you know that you're supposed to serve others. You know you're supposed to give your life for things. So if somebody wrongs you, you what's that, one of the most famous things Jesus ever said? Christians should turn the other cheek. Yeah. I think sometimes, though, we can develop this theology that oh like woe is me I'm just a doormat I have no rights um, so yeah do whatever you want to me because I'm a Christian so don't worry you know woe is me I don't want to bother anybody but that's actually not how Paul looks at rights he goes to extensive detail to make sure you understand you have rights they're real and Paul's saying this like it's actually an injustice not to pay a minister it's totally wrong. First, he shows that through just like looking at the world around him, and then he shows it from Scripture. Like, the, if, if you're not paying somebody who's preaching God's word to you, that's wrong. This is what he says uh, about, he uses just illustrations from things all around him. Like, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? That's verse 7. So, we wouldn't expect somebody to go off to Iraq and buy their own bullets, would we? Like, they're not fighting to protect themselves. They're fighting to protect the country So why would we make them like, hey, you don't have a tent, but you can buy a tent, REI, there's REI in Iraq, so just go buy your own tent. Um, No, Paul's saying that's ridiculous. If someone is fighting a war for you, you need to provide those things for them. But then he says like, look, I'm not just getting this from like looking around at things. I don't want you to think I'm just applying the laws of nature wrong. God's law is actually really specific about this. So in verse 9, kind of one of the confusing things that Paul says is this. He says, doesn't the law of God say something about this? Doesn't it say, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain? So I grew up on an alpaca farm, um, but that's not a real farm. So I really had no idea what it meant to, you know, uh, ox treading out the grain. That was like totally foreign to me. So there's actually videos on YouTube. You can look this up. And I confirmed this with a farmer this morning. So um, grain, when you, when you cut this grass and you throw it down on the ground, there's a stem and there's a grain connected to that stem. And you need something heavy to separate those two things. And so what people would do sometimes, they'd find like a huge heavy board and they'd throw it on it and they drag it over it. Or they'd use a giant stone and they push it over it. Or if you're in a more rural agrarian context, you would just have oxen walk all over this grain. And so, um... What some farmers would do in order to maximize their profit is they would tie the mouths of the oxen shut so that when they're walking over this grain, they're looking at all this food, but they can't eat it, so there's more to sell. Paul says that's unjust. That's wrong. You wouldn't have that grain if it wasn't for that ox. So what you're doing here is wrong. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying like, I'm not paid by you all, and that's unjust. So don't think about, when we think about rights, please don't have this attitude toward your rights. When we're, today we're going to call you to surrender your rights. Don't think like, oh yeah, like that's, woe is me, like I have no rights, I'm just kind of like a doormat. No, 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 you have rights. Paul is saying this though, love gives up those rights willingly. Love costs you something. Love isn't just like, oh, I'm a doormat, so this is what doormats do. No, 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 I'm not a doormat. But I'm willing to serve you. And that's what Paul's doing. Why? Is it because he's just a nice guy? Is it because he just really uh, wants you to see, like, hey, I'm a good person, I'm a great guy? No. Look down at verse 23. This is why Paul is willing to give up his rights. He says this I do all this. So he's talking about everything that came before, all these things becoming all things to all people, not taking a paycheck. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, on account of the gospel. I do this because I'm being driven by the gospel. And what else? So that I may share in its blessings. Paul is surrendering his rights because he's got something better than a paycheck. This is what he says um, in verse 16. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Woe to me. That's, we don't say woe a lot in our culture. Like, oh, woe to, woe to the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, woe, though, is it's a funeral term. It means you are dead, goodbye. And that's what Paul's saying. I might as well not even be alive if I'm not preaching the gospel. Well, And we look at, back at verse 15. He says this. I'm not writing so that you guys pay me. I'm not writing in hopes that you'll pay me. I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. He would rather die. He's found something better than life. See, our culture tells us that self-actualization comes through, dis- through looking at you, putting yourself first, finding out who you really are. But the gospel puts out something different. We find out who we really are by giving ourselves up. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. This chapter, Paul is echoing like crazy Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, we find a Jesus who, though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be showboated, a thing to rub in our faces. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Paul's following in Jesus's footsteps. He's saying, I have credibility, not because I can get a big paycheck, buy a Rolls Royce, and you guys think I'm really cool. I have credibility because I'm following Jesus, and I'm actually giving you guys a picture of what the gospel looks like. He left the glories of heaven. He gave up rights for you. He wasn't a doormat. He really is the king. And so me, I'm not a doormat either. I'm really sharp. I'm really smart. You guys pay me nothing. I deserve that, but I'm surrendering that to give you a picture of the gospel. See, the gospel changes things. See, when, if we're just thinking about um, how we can fit in with culture, or we're afraid of culture, we don't want to get hurt, we're at the center of things. But Paul's calling us to face the culture and say like, yes, these people may cause me harm. These people may embarrass me, but I'm okay to doing that because I'm following in the footsteps of one who gave up everything, who left the beauty of heaven to show us what's truly beautiful. So that's the principle Paul wants to to show you. Hey, I'm modeling this. This gospel came uh, because of how I'm living. And he wants to give us how we do that. So that's the principle. How do we do that? Or what are we doing? We're giving up our rights. But how do we do that? And then look at verse 19 and following. I think this is probably one of the most confusing things that Paul says. Um, it sounds like he's being duplicitous. Well, let's, let's look at it again. He says this, uh, verse 19. Though I'm free I belong to nobody, I make, my slave, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Here we go. It gets weird. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, but I wanted to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not, under, no, I'm not free from God's law, I'm under Christ's, but I wanted to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. Now, if you just read that at face value, it sounds like Paul is being like a chameleon. So, like, is he a Democrat at cocktail parties and then a Republican on the shooting range? Like, what's he talking about here? What does it mean to really be incarnational? What does it mean to, to be all things to all people? That sounds super confusing. Well, I think the idea for this, what Paul is fleshing out, is really found back in 1 Corinthians 8 in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 8.1. This is what Paul says. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that we possess all knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So if we're trying to win Christ, or win people to Christ by giving them information, but you just need to know this. Here's here's a list of facts. Agree to this fact. You're not going to win anybody to Christ. At best, you're just going to puff them up. But if we love people, we can actually build them up into Christ, and that's what Paul is describing. Though he does not say the word love in 1 Corinthians 9, what he is describing is love in motion. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Jude 22. Jude 22 says this, have mercy on those who doubt. And just in case you're curious about the context, the next verse says, by doing so, you might save them from the fires of hell. So it's certainly talking about unbelievers. Have mercy on those who doubt. You see, we're really good at understanding compassion toward ourselves. Like We've memorized Hebrews 4. We have a great high priest who empathizes with us. We, we know Jesus' compassion personally. But when it comes to lost people who are, their life is just a dumpster fire, is compassion our reflex? Paul's saying it should be. Paul's, Paul's saying this, to the weak, I made myself weak. I entered their world. I made their problems my problems. And it gets confusing. He says things like this, to the unrighteous. That's what it literally says to those who don't have the law. It literally literally says, to the unrighteous, I became unrighteous. What does that mean? Paul's saying incarnational ministry isn't afraid of how it looks. There's going to be people on your left and on your right who think you're messing this all up. The people who want to withdraw are going to be like, Man, you just got coffee with an unbeliever. Did you give him the whole gospel right away? Like in the first two minutes of your coffee? You're wasting your time. What are you doing? And there's going to be people on your left who are assimilating, and they're like, you're not being loving. You don't care about that person, telling them they're sinful. But incarnational ministry blows through both of those things. It says, no, no, no. I make the the problems of the people around me my problems. I take ownership of that. What are you afraid of? Okay, I'm not afraid of that, but let me understand that. I want to get at that. Um. You see, the, if Paul just left it at, I became all things to all people, you'd have just assimilation. I became all things to all people. And guess what? Everybody liked me. It was so great. But he doesn't say that. He says this, I became all things to all people so that I might save some. We enter people's worlds. We understand what they're going through. We walk with them. Not so that we're liked, but ultimately to confront them. The point of relationships is so that we are able to say, hey, I get the questions you have. Here's the answer. Let Let me point you to Jesus. It can be so easy to have friends who aren't believers and be friends with them for years without ever hitting the topic. You dance around it, and you might feel good about it. But have you entered their world to confront? Paul's trying to call us out of comfort. We don't build friendships just for the sake of friendships. We build friendships because we want people to flourish. And wholeness can only be found in Jesus. Like when we see our unbelieving friends and we see them looking to their careers for their identity, when we see them looking toward their kids for their identity, and we see that and we go, great, that's awesome. But we never actually say like, hey, there's something better. Have you thought, ha, has anyone ever shared with you the gospel? We're missing the point of friendships. That's not incarnational. So this is hard. This is super hard. I mean, I have friends that we've been friends for years, and I, I've, ooh. Like, they know where I stand, but I, ooh, let's, can we, it's Thanksgiving. Do we really need to talk about this? But that, Paul even makes uh, allowance for this being hard. He all of a sudden becomes like a Midwest pastor on you. Like at the end of the passage, he starts making all these sports analogies. He's like, people run, people box. And it's like, wait, what is happening here. But here's what he's saying. He's saying this, like, I know this is a hard way to do life and a hard way to do ministry. But you need to build rhythms in your life that remind you of the gospel. So we can all say, let's be incarnational. But unless if we really build rhythms, we're going to slide into one side or the other. And so Paul ends this chapter starting in verse 24 by inviting us to build rhythms in your life that remind you of the gospel. Uh, Look at verse, starting in verse 24. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run? Uh Uh-huh. But only one gets the prize. Run in such a way so as to get that prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into very strict training. They do it, uh, to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So when I first met Amy, I was not really super disciplined. Like when we were dating, I remember very vividly, there was a moment when she was like, hey, let's sync our calendars. Uh, I, don't, I don't have a calendar. And so I knew that Amy was way up here, and I'm like kind of floundering down here. And I knew that I really liked her and she was special and I did not want to let her get away. And I knew that if I I was going to be the guy that was worthy to marry her, I had to come up to her level. See that? I got really disciplined. See, discipline needs to have a goal in mind. It's like the old adage goes, discipline without delight is drudgery. And so Paul here is trying to say, you need to discipline yourselves. You need to really make sure that this incarnational life isn't just a fleeting fad in your life, but it's actually something that you do till the day you die. And he's saying this though, build that into your life. Discipline yourself so that you stay on track of this. And he he does that with offering hope, and then he gives us a warning. The hope that he gives us is found in verse uh, 25. He says this, everybody who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. See, he's reminding us of eternity. He's saying, hey, this suffering, being a stranger in a land, it's all just a season. This, even if you rock it and do well, it's not going to last forever. He's trying to pick up their eyes from their current situation and remind them of eternity. That one day we'll be in the new heavens and the new earth and we'll have rewards that are lasting. If you nail it in this life and this life only, it's so temporary. So Paul's trying to remind them of the hope. Like, what, that's important because what you're motivated with yourself is how you're going to motivate other people. So if I'm anxiously frantic to get out of the door on Sunday mornings, and I'm like, Amy, Jet, come on, like, we got to get there right on time. People need to see that we're like on time. Come on! Like, I'm gonna motiv- if I'm anxiously frantic, I'm going to motivate them to be anxiously frantic. But Paul doesn't motivate people to live incarnationally by being angry, by bringing down the hammer. He motivates them through the hope, the ultimate prize, the end of the story. Like, hey, Jesus and his kingdom does not end. This is just a season. You're only strangers for a time. But there's also a warning here. And I think we in America do well to take this warning very seriously. Look at verse 27. I beat my body. I make it my slave so that after having preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What's Paul saying? He's saying "Listen, I've lived in such a way where every single decision I've made points to the gospel. I gave up my rights so that I could say, like, look, this is a picture of the gospel. This is who Jesus is. Now imagine Paul stole money, or he had an affair. He's totally disqualified. That gospel he was preaching, everyone's going to look and be like, I knew it. I knew it. This wasn't really about hope. This wasn't really about being reconciled to God. This, you were just trying to get money. You are just trying to get girls. We need to take that really seriously. Because we're speaking to people, the culture around us, who, in their eyes, and honestly, in a little bit of reality, we are disqualified. When you think about, if someone thinks about America as a Christian nation, uh, what many people hear is their mind goes back to a time, oh yeah, I remember when America was a Christian nation. That's when blacks sat on the the back of buses. We had Jim Crow laws. Sexual harassment was rampant in the workplace. Men ran things. I remember a Christian nation. No, thank you. How How do we respond? Do we just come back with knowledge? No, 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 no. Here's all the ways Christianity is awesome. No. Come back with love. We become all things to all people. This message is super relevant for the church today. The Me Too movement, as many of you are familiar with, um, has a subset called the Church Too movement. And there are many prominent evangelical pastors who are coming out In scandal, saying like, yeah, I I behaved inappropriately years ago. That discredits the gospel. That's working us backwards. And We live in a culture where everybody sees that. They saw Americans trying to grapple for the White House. They saw Americans fighting for power. Are we about that? Or are we about Christ and him crucified? What do we want? Paul's saying this. Build rhythms in your life that remind you of the gospel and be aware you can disqualify yourself. That's a warning we need to take seriously. We, we Our witness can be damaged. And so as I close, I just want to give you guys four nudges, four gentle pushes. Um, first, four to keep you from withdrawing. Withdrawing is a real temptation. I get it. The world is a scary place. So I want to give you four nudges that if you make these rhythms of your life, it makes withdrawing difficult. And then we're going to do four nudges to keep you from assimilating. So four nudges to keep you from withdrawing. Number one, work out with somebody from a different worldview. This is Columbia, Missouri, okay? This this isn't, I don't know where it's, this isn't Rockbridge, all right? Like, the the whole world's here, all right? The university's here. You can find somebody from a different worldview, okay? Work out with them. Eat, you're like, oh, working out costs money. Great thing about Columbia, Missouri, the trail is free, okay? Just invite somebody who doesn't think like you to walk on the trail and make that a rhythm. It's really difficult to withdraw when you like the people you want to withdraw from. Make that a rhythm. Work out with somebody from a different worldview. Number two, become a regular at a coffee shop or a restaurant. It's amazing that if you just show up at some place over and over again, you start to see the same people become a regular at a coffee shop. You'll start to build relationships. You'll start to see people and that nudge makes it a little bit more difficult to run away. If you have kids, arrange play dates for your kids with kids of parents who don't know Jesus. This is a great one. You can get instant like common ground with people. Oh, your kids drive you crazy? They drive me crazy. Boom, you're in. Make that a rhythm of your life. The last one: Invite coworkers over to your house for dinner. We've had friends that they made, uh, they had a night of the week where they would always have people over, and it became such a regular rhythm. At first, it was hard; it was awkward, it was unusual. But after a while, it became so regular that it felt weird if they didn't do it. It was just a natural extension of what they do. Again, it's difficult to run away when people are in your house. Four nudges to keep you from assimilating. Four nudges to keep you from becoming like others to reach them uh, in a way that's not helpful first one take a week off from netflix now i'm never i promise this is a promise i will never tell you what to watch i will never tell you i'm not here to be your mom okay but you're a grown-up but time magazine in 2015 So this is ages ago right in the internet age this is forever ago Time Magazine said that the average Netflix account holder watches one hour and 36 minutes a day of Netflix. And this was even before Stranger Things came out, okay? If you're watching one hour and 36 minutes a day of Netflix, that's junk food. You're just blindly consuming. And when you just consume stuff like that, it shapes you. Shapes you in ways you don't know. So take, a di- take a week off. You'll start to see, like, ways that you were shaped by things. I did this uh, once, and I, I didn't even realize that this is, like, not sin at all. It's just stupid. But I realized I'm, like, su- I was super afraid of, like, I thought I'd have to, like, fight somebody one day. Like, I've seen one fight in my whole life. But I remember, like, oh, everybody's ready to fight me. And I'm like, I think I'm being shaped by TV. Oh, that's sad. Like, I'm an adult, and I, oh, my gosh. TV's shaping you. Take a week off. Take a week off from social media. Number two, take a week off from social media. You might be scared all the time because you're reading news all the time that's designed to get your attention so you keep clicking on things, and so you start to think the world may be worse than it really is because you have fallen sucker to uh, the media age, okay? Like, listen, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't be informed. We should absolutely be informed, but... These news media outlets are businesses, okay? They get money by you going on these sites. Take a week off. They're shaping you in ways you don't know. Take a week off. You'll start to see ways that you've already assimilated in little ways. That your, your, your fears, your hopes, what you think the good life looks like is being shaped by how much time you spend on social media. Instagram. I think everybody, but especially this row. Instagram. Instagram is selling pictures of what the good life looks like. Just detox for a little bit. Number three, third way to stop assimilating. Find someone safe to share your struggles with. Find someone safe to share your struggles with. This week, I was super blessed by someone in this body. We got together, and they shared with me something they were struggling with. They were just like, hey, I've been walking through this. It's been really hard. What that did for my heart It just opened up all these other things. Like, man, I've been struggling with this. And it was awesome. We're being shaped by the world. But when we bring things into the light, it has this way of just purifying us. Like, when we deal with things together, we're able to walk. Like, you guys are struggling with, we're all struggling with how do we live in this brave new world. Share that with somebody. Say, hey, you know what? Like, I think I'm angry because I'm being shaped by the culture. Hey, you know what? I'm scared of the culture. I'm running from the culture. When you share that with people, when you bring things into light, it has this amazing therapeutic result. Find someone safe and share your struggles with them. Last thing, the last way nudge to keep you from assimilating, get a good night's sleep. Mr. Spurgeon once said, oh, the terrible sins we can avoid because we're not groggy and tired. So get a good night's sleep. The world is changing. The times are changing. But you know what's not? The hope of the gospel. The message that Jesus ran into brokenness. He ran into the burning building to rescue us. We can go back into the burning building of our culture and rescue others. We don't have to sell out. We don't have to run. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you that he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, I pray that if there are people here who don't know the hope of Jesus, that today they would come to your son and have their sins forgiven. Today. But God, I pray that we as a church would not be afraid. That we would know this is exactly what your son is calling us to do. He's calling us to live in the midst of a broken world. ask all these things in his powerful name. Amen.